welcome to Resident Advisors Exchange, our series of conversations with the artists, labels and promoters shaping the electronic music landscape. My name is Mark Smith and I am the tech editor at Resident Advisor. This week's exchange sees us return to the iFilm Institute in Amsterdam for the first installment of a series of talks and interviews recorded live for RA's annual conference at Deckmantle Festival. First, we have Martha Pazienti-Caden presenting a panel titled Knowledge Sharing Across Generations. She brought together a combination of scene veterans and newer artists for a knowledge sharing exercise that explores how the music industry has changed over time. Joined by Carista, Jan Schulter, Aaron Coyes from Peaking Lights, and Suzanne Chiani, we hear of the importance of mentoring, taking care of yourself as an artist, and the changes accessibility has wrought on electronic music. As always, you can find our full archive of exchanges at residentadvisor.net and follow us on SoundCloud at ra-exchange. The knowledge sharing panel is up next. everyone and welcome to the knowledge sharing panel. My name's Martha, I'm from Resident Advisor and um, we're going to spend some time swapping some insight and learning about the careers of the people who are sitting with me today. We do have DJ and curator Carista. Hello everyone. <laughs> and we have one half of the psychedelic pop duo Peaking Lights, this is Aaron. Jan Schult, a.k.a. Wolfmuller, a.k.a. Bufferman. Guten Tag. <laughs> and with extensive experience in the world of production, DJing, synthesizers, we have Suzanne Chiani. Um, but to get started, I was hoping that we could get kind of um, an overview of those of you that produce music, um, how your practices have evolved in terms of tools, software, hardware, and I thought maybe, Suzanne, this might be a nice moment for you to tell us about your relationship with the Buchla and how that's evolved. Uh, yes, the Buchla, my, my first love. Uh, I started playing the Buchla in the late 60s, and I played uh, continuously for about 10 years, and then it broke. Uh, I moved to New York City, and I started a production house and did a lot of music production for television and film and started making recorded albums. So by that time, the technology had kind of gone into MIDI. So there was a lot of recording. But then when I moved back to the West Coast and reconnected with Don Buchla, uh, I just did a complete 360 and I went right back to the Buchla. Uh, so that's what I'm doing now. I'm just playing the bukla as if it were the 70s. Because in those days, you know, my dream was just to continuously play the bukla live, but there were no outlets for it. There was no audience. It, it just wasn't understood. So it's a great pleasure for me to come back with the new Buchla, which is the 200E and not the 200, and to find an audience who really understands 
what's going on. This, for me, is like I feel like Sleeping Beauty. You know, and I was asleep, everybody was asleep for 40 years. <laughs> and then I wake up and it's like, wow, you know. So that's my Buchla story. And Jan, how about you for making music? How have things changed with your tools? Uh, yeah, it has changed. I mean, in the beginning, I used records mostly as tools. I had a computer and used samples, and I didn't even have a sampler uh, as a gear machine. And um, somehow learned to use the sound color of the records I used for my music. And actually, like synthesizers, I learned through the years, and I'm still learning. I'm, I'm, it's still trial and error. And Aaron, in Peaking Lights, how have you guys been able to refine your creative process for making music over the years? It's a manner of economic disparity for us. So, you know, we started in punk bands and uh, I did experimental music. I always wanted synthesizers and I couldn't afford to buy them, so I had to figure out how to build them. And so I started building stuff and we started recording on shitty... Um, you know, cassette tapes or whatever, having to balance a cassette tape through a stereo onto another handheld recorder and find creative ways to mix. And eventually, I don't know, I just was able to... Actually, what ended up happening is this record label asked me to do a remix for them and they bought me Pro Tools, so I figured that out. So, I mean, it's always been based on, like, what I've had access to monetarily. Usually that's not very much because I don't really feel like giving in and I, I don't know, I'd just rather ex experiment and make weird shit than write, you know, straight up radio songs. Yeah. Someone else can do that. <laughs> that's what we like to hear. We like to hear. And Carissa, have you made any music? No, not I'm not yet. a producer at all. I'm Maybe just, one uh, day. I'm a collector and a DJ. I wanted to ask you about your um, process of staying organized when it comes to selecting songs for DJing and for radio and how has that process been tightened up since you started DJing? So I started DJing like 10 years ago and um, in 2015 I had my f um, first uh, online radio at Red Light Radio and before that I was already collecting and playing records ever since it's like already now four years ago um, in four years time that I um, have my radio show and how I organize my music depends also what kind of music is already out. It's a mixture of new music and music that uh, exists already for a long time and that I just found out, discovered, you know, so it's a mixture of, um, of those two and it's a difference between playing in clubs and on radio. The, the key is for me to um, make people listen and for, in this case, an hour, an hour or two, and keep them listening to, to the radio show. That's the trick. And the difference between and, and in playing on the on a club night or a festival um, is to make people dance. And that's the, that's the task of the DJ, in my opinion. So over the, it's basically the same thing that I'm uh, trying to do every time for the radio show or in the club just to keep myself challenged, but also to make the people and the listeners uh, listen more to the music instead of just whatever, <laughs> just doing that. So over the years, it's basically the same recipe, but keeping myself and other people also interested. Yeah. 
And how about for the logistics of like being able to get to your set and make sure everything is smoothed? Is a lot of preparation going in into organizing the folders and literal records? In the beginning, because you're like collecting lots of music that you like, different music that you haven't uh, listened to yet, or uh, friends of friends sending sent you the music. Um, I organize my music for radio shows in a different folder than music for that's for for, for festivals or club shows. So um, yeah, just I don't think there's a huge difference over the time. I just make playlists <laughs> uh, or uh, separate the records that I want to play in my radio shows or or in clubs. Yeah. Yeah, you're just able to sort of refine the process every single time. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And. Yeah, and you have three different aliases, which I feel like we'll break into later on. But in terms of organizing music for these different sets, how do you prepare? Uh, there was a time when I was uh, trying to differentiate a lot between those names, but um, in the end, especially with DJ gigs, it ended, I ended up that only the promoter knew one of the specific aliases and one of and I knew the crowd would not be able to just listen to a Wolf Miller percussion set completely. I still see DJing also as a service, so as Carista said, um, it's about to make people dance. And in the end, it always, of course, there's not really a border between all the names. I, I mostly start with rhythms and how I feel along the path and then decide on the alter ego uh, I use. But there was, no, there was never a plan to have it such a big topic, actually. I saw it as a normal thing to have different names and different records, it's different projects. It's fun to have like the whole concept of a record in a new way when you do a new record. And these days I'm actually embarrassed when I see uh, posters for events and it's like Jan Schulter, a.k.a. Buffman, a.k.a. Wolf Müller. It's, kind of, it's a promotion, of course. People have want to do it, but there was not the plan to look like the show-off with a lot of a.k.a.s. <laughs> And Aaron, we touched on this briefly with what you said before about um, being given Pro Tools, but I was curious about your thoughts on as accessibility has sort of expanded and more people have been able to get access to more tools, do you think that is like a helpful thing for opening up electronic music? And would you maybe have a piece of advice for someone who is starting out with making music? Okay, this is this is this is coming from like a real left field thing because I I, I ended up going to to college later in my life, and I ended up doing um, I studied film and experimental film, and one of the things in uh, with film was that it's kind of a weird his, his, history kind of question. So okay, so with with film there was like super eight right and eight millimeter. And maybe your grandparents or great-grandparents had film of your parents or grandparents, depending on your age, of Super 8. Like, Super 8 was this totally accessible thing, and anybody could make films. And then you had, like, Nick Zed and Richard Kern, and um, uh, film was actually in the hands of the people. People could make their own films. And then what happened? It gets taken away. You have all this media form that, that is given to people. People use it. Uh, cassette, four track, recorders, all that, you know, going into Pro Tools, things get cheaper, and then they eventually get taken away from people as people build it. So I think as much accessibility as you can have, yeah, it's great. More people making stuff, yeah, fine. More people that don't know music, like traditional music structures, 
all the better. Like, yeah, use whatever you have by any means necessary. Mm. Go for it. Yeah. Yeah. Suzanne, do you have any advice for someone who is not from a musical background but is wanting to get into music? Well, the thing I loved about music technology is that it's, um, I always say it's a relationship. So you, you encounter a machine, a tool, whatever it is. And in the old days, what we did, there were no manuals, there were no books, there was nobody to talk to. And you developed your knowledge just by doing it. I know that's harder in um, you know, a computer system where you have menus and lots of dependencies. You know, do this and then do that and then do this. But that's why I'm in analog. So analog's a wonderful universe. And I think it's a very popular one now. And the beauty of it is that it's just that relationship between you and the machine and there's a correlation. You know, you do something, you turn a knob and you hear a change. You make a patch, you hear, so it's empirical. You can learn it just by doing it. And the more time you spend with it, the more you discover it's deep. It doesn't end, you know, it's not boring. It's not like, oh, I went up to the keyboard and I got a sound out, isn't that like cool? No, this is more like an evolutionary learning process that never ends. And so that's my idea for now is, you know, analog, spend time, don't read, just do it. Yeah. Beautiful. Um, shall we come back to DJing? Because this is what sure. I am extremely curious about. Part of like growing as a DJ is obviously playing back to back. Last time I saw you DJ was back to back yeah and that was here in Amsterdam as well with Elias Mazian yeah yeah what is your like guidelines for back-to-back -back etiquette when it comes to playing with another DJ um I don't play that often back-to-back -back. um only with the people I really know uh Elias and I uh, know each other for 10 years from back in the hip-hop times that we played uh, that he was a hip-hop DJ for a hip-hop artist here in, in the Netherlands. And I was a tour photographer for a hip-hop group. So that's how we met and ever since we kind of uh, had contact. So, and I know that uh, the both of us have the same taste in music, uh, if it comes in house music or even uh, soul or funk music, something like that. So. Um, I'm very selective with people uh, with who I play back-to-back -back with. More than 90% of the time, because we know from each other that we like the same music, we don't really um, prepare. We make, uh, we, may, we make it happen on the particular moment that we have the DJ set. Um, and that creates very interesting interesting moments and orders in the, in the set that you don't even think about. It. Okay, that sounds really nice. I didn't expect that from from you or from myself even. Um, so there's not really a guideline. I'm just being very specific with who I play back-to-back -back with. It's not that I am going to play back-to-back -back with uh, Steve Aoki, for instance. I don't know. Oh, I would love <laughs> you know, to see that. That's really from the other side of uh, the musical spectrum of DJing. But um, I'm very selective 
with it. Does anyone else have any experience of playing back to back? I think I have, yes. <laughs> I mean, I, I learned uh, most of DJing playing back to back in the salon, uh, the Zamaturs in Düsseldorf, where I started off as a DJ mostly. And uh, those were, we always did a night from end, from beginning to the end with two people, which means starting it from 11 and then go as long as the night goes, which would be eight or nine sometimes. This um, directly told me uh, maybe a different path about back-to-back -back playing, how it's possible to challenge each other to play the records that, the B-sides of the records that you never thought you would play anytime soon, but um, then it just, yeah, the other person that you play with guides you to it, does, does something uh, you didn't expect. So my approach to back-to-back -to -back playing was always very um, about also about learning music. It was about to show each other what, what your discoveries, and um, it was in, in a not professional way regarding a music scene from now, where big back-to-back -back bookings are for delivery approaches. For us, it was always about discovery as well, and to uh, uh, like level the approach, how much you could go far out with the crowd, yeah. Did you have any practical things that you had to learn how to do? Like, does someone have to take over whilst the other person runs to the toilet? Or do you not eat anything during those long sets? Like, how do you make that work? I mean, the toilet situation is super chill when you're playing back to back, of course. That's, uh, <laughs> that's the evenings. That can also be, like, uh, turn the evening in a different direction. You don't have to be careful with drinking, so you can drink a lot more, which turns the night weirdly sometimes as well, but um, what was the other part of the question again? I was, I was just wondering, like, do you have snacks when you play for that long? Or? Uh, not really. I mean, I mostly uh, like have a beer at some point in the night, which I don't do all the time while DJing, but it's, it's like liquid bread we send sometimes, and it helps you over if you get hungry a bit. But um, no, I, I think uh, from my perspective, Eating food while DJing is weird. Also, also from the perspective as the crowd, I mean, I wouldn't. When someone has time to eat while he's doing his stuff, then I mean, it looks to me it looks weird. I won't have a snack while DJing. It's like I don't care, you know, what eating. So yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I can see. That. I'm, I'm totally in in the zone when I DJ. Like I'm fully into the music. My head just processes the next songs, the next possibilities. So that's, there's no time for me to do that. Can, can I ask a stupid question? Um, because I'm really not a DJ, but when you do back-to-back, -back, are you s switching off like every, what? Every you make decisions uh, mostly in front of the set. It's a normal thing to play one-on-one -on -one track, but it's, of course, um, hard to... Uh, sometimes when things are not running perfectly and you have the feeling it's a bit chaotic, then uh, I decide with my friends that maybe two or three tracks are better to f give a new direction. But in the best cases, it works one-on-one -on -one and it just flows. So, yeah. Cool. Cool. How about it for you, Krista? One-on-one? -on -one? Exactly. It depends also on the time that you have uh, for a back-to-back. -back. Uh, one and a half hour short, really. So you do one-on-one. -on -one. If you got like three hours. It depends also that you play like two over two. Uh, but basically, one-on-one. -on -one. It's the perfect, so you can like switch easily and make surprises and make people go wow, or even the DJ that you play back to back with. So yeah, one one's for me the best. 
for sure. Yeah, that's why I like it because when you play back to back, you basically just get to be the person's biggest fan and stand right next to them, and then you switch and they get to be your biggest fan and stand right next to you. It's cute. Exactly. Um, let's move on to talk about the same thing, but from the other side, um, in terms of performance. Suzanne, do you have any rituals that you've developed that help you get in the zone for a performance? I just love it so much. You know, I just love having that like special time with my book club because in normal life, there are so many distractions. You know, even if you sit down to play at home, something comes up, you know. The phone, the gardener, the relative, the, you know, there's always something going on. And that beautiful, uh, special moment when you're performing, it's like just being in a bubble. It's so complete and absorbing and safe. You know, nobody's going to bother me. And it's my time. So I don't know if that was your question, but that's my, my ritual is just to, um, you know, jump in it, but I, I don't like to be too prepared because then, you know, I, I like the little shock. It's like, oh my God, I forgot to plug that one in there. And I like to recover, you know, while I'm playing because it keeps me awake. You know, it's a very uh, focused, conscious thing. And the older I get, you know, maybe the less mentally, you know, I, I don't know if the synapses fire at the same rate anymore. So, um, but I, I'm very patient with myself and uh, just enjoy the, dis, you know, the uh, surprises. And how about for you, Aaron? Is there any peaking lights pre-show rituals that you've developed? I, I can't really eat before I play. Kind of like fast throughout the day usually. And then... I don't drink or do drugs. Seven years strong now. Eight years no smoking. So, I don't know, I drink lots of water. <laughs> stay hydrated. And, uh, yeah, stay hydrated. Eat a lot of dark chocolate. Oh, yeah. That's, nice. that's my thing. Yeah, yeah, it's good, right? <laughs> 85, minimum 85. Yeah, yeah. I'm with you. So um, just taking a sip of water there. Yeah, gotta stay hydrated. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I don't know ritual wise, but you know the other, like playing. It, it. I guess it just depends. Like, try and kind of like be meditative, depending on the set. Like, if I'm going and DJing, it's usually like I, kind of try and like just clear my head. It's maybe a little bit less um, hectic as playing live because live, uh, like live, we have all our stuff is hardware. So it's, um, and then I have a big, like a 24 channel mixing console in front um, that, I, that I use. So it's, um, and I'm mainly playing the mixing console, I guess. Yeah, so that's much more involved. It's like 24 channels of dubbing constantly. So that's more focused, I guess. So I just kind of need to maintain focus. Mm. Essential. Yeah. Um, Let's move on to the business side of the industry that electronic music has become. And I would be really curious to hear if everyone's up for sharing some thoughts on the teams that they've built around them. Because these days when you're like a new person starting out, you're kind of made to feel like you have to have an agent and a manager and all these different things. And That's bullshit. Okay, you heard it here first. 
<laughs> but I would definitely be curious to hear from each of you um, how you've grown the team around you and um, yeah, why you think that's bullshit, starting with Aaron. <laughs> uh, I think it's bullshit because I think that I think people will respond to good music no matter where it comes from. And I think that things like Instagram, well, you know, I'm, I was like, I'm like a child of the 70s, so I guess that I have a different perspective of uh, growing up, like when, you know, when I started playing music, I played in like power violence bands and you probably don't even know what that is. <laughs> uh, this is really, uh, really crazy sounding. Look up power violence vans. Okay, look, up look up like Infest or something. <laughs> or Man is the Bastard. And, uh, <laughs> uh, play, you know, playing this really crazy music. It was all flyering, maximum rock and roll. Book your, was, was a magazine called Book Your Own Fucking Life. You'd call, you'd send letters, you'd mail cassette tapes, and you'd, that's how you would get to, to tour. And, and, uh, and get get shows. I mean, it was like it was all very much, I guess, more organic than dealing with an algorithm of like a, a website. So you didn't have to have. Now you have to have money. So now it's like the music industry is being narrowed down from people who didn't have money. Used to be you could spend fifty bucks by a shitty guitar, fifty bucks by a shitty amplifier. That call it a day. You know, your other friend did it. 300 bucks, you got a band, you know, you could tour, no problem, hop on a Greyhound bus. Now it's like, you know, if you want to get seen or whatever or have that, you have to have someone backing you. So, which is kind of a shame because I'm sure some of the best music right now isn't even on, on the internet. It's, you know, it's beyond that. It's, or it's not that it's beyond it, it's just under it. I mean, you have like, pop stars like Taylor Swift, whose father was a billionaire banker who literally caused like an economic collapse, but yet no one talks about that. Everyone likes the pop star, you know? It's like people's priorities are fucking off in, to some degree right now. I mean, yeah, I mean, I might be wrong, but I just, I kind of think that to have a business, like you have to have yourself. That's the number one thing. You have to have yourself and you have to put energy into yourself. Like, fuck having a manager. You know, an agent will come when you like when you have it when it's right. Like you don't you don't need you don't need that. You don't. I've dealt with managers and we tried we tried one we tried to go one way, and you know I love the record label that we were working for uh, years in the past. This record label called Domino, absolutely amazing. But there was uh, there was a disconnect between what we wanted to do and what they wanted us to do, and so. You know, and we had a manager that was like not on the same page as us. And there was, um, so we get, we're, we're an electronic band. We always have been, we'd roll up to shows and we'd have all this weird gear playing with rock bands and people would be like, what the hell is this? You can't, like, we're just different. We're not, we're not that way. You know, we're not going to, no one's, you're not going to change the mind of an audience who wants to go see that. And we weren't willing to compromise, to make that compromise to, to do that. So... I mean, you kind of have to just do it yourself, I think, if you, you know, just not worry about it. Yeah. Um, has anyone had an opposite experience where they feel like a management or an agent sort of support has helped elevate them? Well, let me just say, an agent, an agent is different than agent a manager. The, an agent is different than a manager because an agent actually gets you work. They get you work. A manager manages your affairs. 
So if you can't manage your own affairs, your manager can be taking money from you. Your manager can be setting up things that might not be appropriate because you're not taking care of your own affairs. Mm. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Has anyone had a different experience with management? Well, I never had a management, so uh, no experience. But I have an agent and I'm very happy about him because I hate to talk about money and any of that stuff. I would be the worst uh, negotiator in the world because I have fun doing what I do. I like doing this and it's amazing that I can do this so I would go anywhere <laughs> for whatever money. So it's, it's good that I have an agent. Peace, Rob. <laughs> yeah, I do have a manager. He's basically one of my best friends. Uh, that I've been known for um, a good eight years from the um, Amsterdam club scene, basically. Um, we knew each other from there, and this one time I knew that he was uh, starting out with his own agency called Bureau Punt, and I slowly and surely but get um, a few gigs in around Amsterdam, and, and I knew, like, maybe he's the right person to to handle my bookings first. Um, and then he handled also my management at the same time. I think it's important to have like someone in your team, I've got a very small team, like three or four people, uh, who totally understand where you, come, where you want to go. Your own vision is very important to have. And from there on out, you can um, together, not, uh, not for each other, but you work together so, to a certain goal. And so far, so good. So far, it helped me in in the best way possible. Of course, you have to look at the, uh, to the to the money part, of course, and and the contracts that you guys have with each other. But basically, not uh, with both of the parties, with my agent or with my agent uh, with my manager. I don't have a physical contract. It's just the trust that you build over the years with each other, and the willing to make try to make a difference. I know that my manager is very a hard-headed guy and doing certain things for uh, to make a change and not to like follow the the the, the mainstream path actually. Um, and my agent's actually the same. Um, she is. From the people that I um, met and that I recognize is that she has a lot of uh, experience of over 20 years, starting as working in a, in an office for one of the biggest uh, DJs like Louis Vega, being a tour manager. She knows like from both sides how the industry kinds of works, and um, for me uh, that is yeah, very important to have those two people and three people because she also has the assistant have, have the noses and the heads to the to the right points uh, to the to one particular way and for me it helps a lot because i need i know for myself that there's so many things going in my mind <laughs> that i need um i don't know how to say it in in english but i need a, a clunk board to like someone that i can like interact with and share minds and thoughts with and for me, my manager is basically that guy who can find the red, <laughs> the line in between all of my thoughts and visions and things that I want to achieve. And he kind of slow puts it like in a, in a time schedule, in a time frame, because you cannot do everything at the same time. Um, regarding social media, I do everything myself because I like to do that. <laughs> I like to share personal thoughts and. 
um, and text this underneath my Instagram post every now and then to keep like to keep it human. You know, like you're not you're not just a, pro a product, but you're a human who is doing a, doing a job. And for myself, like last year was really like my big year, and how to uh, handle that and how to how to maintain it too. For me, it was kind of a therapy session via the new media, basically through social media in this case, and to have also interaction with the people that like you, you know, so yeah, I kind of like that. It's also really nice to do that, I think. Really nice. It's nice to hear a positive about social media. Let's come back to that later on. Uh, but before we move on, I'll be curious to hear how your team has changed over the years, Suzanne. Oh, there have been many, many years and many, you know, eras. You know, I had a previous life as a as a pianist. You know, I started out kind of bootstrapping my career. And then it got, you know, where I had a big agent, big manager, and, you know, the whole Hollywood thing. And, you know, now the, the result of that is that I have five masters that are on Sony that I don't have rights to. And I made a decision, you know, when it got out of hand, uh, that I just cleaned house. One day, I moved from New York, I moved to the West Coast, fired everybody, you know, the manager, the agent, the record label, and I just started from ground zero. I started my own label in 1994, and I just wanted control. I wanted control of my own music. You know, I felt that my, my albums were like my children. They weren't for sale. So that's still where I am. I had the very good fortune to have Rachel here. Rachel Aiello is my assistant, and she, you know, I, I don't want an, an agent, and I don't want a manager per se, but that work still needs to be done. How we do it is that we, we don't solicit. You know, we only take what comes in. And that's already an energy system because you're not spending energy looking for things. You know that there's energy there because they have come to you. And then there's still a lot of work that has to go on to organize it. You know, can you get from Australia to London in two hours, you know? <laughs> so it's kind of fun that way. And... Um, and I'm trying to get my master's back. And I do believe in being indie. I know that, that the deals have changed. You know, the old dinosaur contracts with the major labels were just horrific. And the typical deal I see now with a record label is different. It's more of like a 50-50 deal. And so, you know, I can't really comment that it, it doesn't work. I don't know. I think it, they fixed it in a way. You know, but the one thing I caution against is getting things for endorsement of your own value isn't a good idea. You don't need a manager to look good. You don't need an agent to be more important. You don't need, as an indie, and I think we're all indie now, or should be, or have indie consciousness, you know, you need to understand all the business 
and then you can delegate. They always say, don't delegate what you don't understand. So, you know, there's, it's a lot of work. I, I, I don't think it's just like, I mean, doing music for me is a small percentage. Uh, that's just the reality. I, I don't know about anybody else, but... It is, it, it, yeah, there's a, lot, there's a lot more that you have to do, but it's taking care of yourself, right? I mean, it's like you wouldn't wake up in the morning and like just wait for someone to make you breakfast. You make it yourself, right? <laughs> I don't know. I still like somebody to give me breakfast in bed. I'm <laughs> I mean, that is a nice thing, yeah. but, 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 but you know what I mean. I mean, and to a certain degree. Well, you have to be responsible. You have to tell them how many minutes you want the eggs cooked. You know, yeah. you have to like, you have to know what you need, right? What about for the budding managers out there? What would your advice be for them in terms of like building a good relationship with an artist? Maybe Suzanne, you could start. I like her idea about having a good friend somebody who knows you well. You don't want to be or feel like a number in a system or a commodity or a product or something. You know, you want to be as, as personal and as, you know, three-dimensional as you can be yeah. with that person. Equal, being feeling um, mm. that there is no hierarchy between you guys. Um, right. I, like the, I like the boutique, the small... Uh, mm -hmm. companies, you know, so you feel like exactly not like a number in the system. Um, I think that's for me really important. That That's for me individually, but that depends on any other person who likes to be at a big management company and and and, and you do your own media, you were I saying. Do, like, I, most of the things myself, yeah, like the bookings, cool. I, we also like communicate by email or even by phone if mm -hmm. I would like to do it or not. And it's not that somebody is like fixing anything from me, like handling and the process how to, but um, if there's a booking coming in that I don't really see myself playing at, then we're not going to do it. should be equal in every, other, every way. Mm. And Jan, you're happy with your agent, but what was the process to settle with this particular person? Um, the, my story with my agent is quite funny because he found me uh, on Discogs selling a record of mine and then he wrote, uh, Are you Jan? I want to talk to you anyways uh, and make you an offer. So um, it's, kind of, it's kind of a story that uh, I like a lot because it shows the reality of what I do is like have taken care of music and uh, all my um, all my thoughts about music and um, um, when he approached me I was very nervous and I thought this is um, isn't this too early or something but it was actually the perfect time to get slowly used to it and uh, it's it's slowly grow over years and um, I wouldn't yeah I'm, I'm totally happy with the situation like this I don't have any other experience but um, also regarding management situations, I I mostly like to keep uh, personal contact as much as as much as possible, which is of course not always possible, because every weekend I meet 10, 15, 20 people, and their friends and their girlfriends, and um, a lot of people get in contact afterwards. And um, in the beginning, it made me nervous to not answer everything. And um, I didn't even take a day off of just answering and answering. And at some point, I had to make the decision of 
forgetting about it as, as when it's so far down that you don't see it. It's because I just, I, if, if I would give everyone this amount that I wouldn't, that I normally would love to, I would not do music anymore. And I think also people want music from me, so maybe that's the better deal in the end. I don't know. It's <laughs> <laughs> great. Priorities are right there. Um, okay, I think this would be a good moment to sort of break more into the social media world. Um, I think it's kind of a gross topic, but I think we should touch on it anyway, because it's one of the biggest like shifts in the electronic music industry that we've seen. So, Carissa, you've told us that you, can't, you don't mind it. It's okay. You can get by with, with using it. Yeah, whenever I feel like it. Yeah, for sure. So, um, I definitely do so sometimes a break, like a couple of weeks. But, which is kind of difficult because it's like really in in your routine uh, to even like scroll down to the timeline or um, post something by yourself or comment even on certain things that you see. But for myself, um, yeah, I like to I like to put photos of a certain of a show that I have uh, online and thank the people along uh, in the comment section. You know. But social media is it's, uh, in, nowadays a very important asset for being a DJ to be seen or an artist to be seen. Or they pe some people even uh, look at the followers, the amount of followers that you have on Instagram or even on Facebook or, I don't know, Spotify or something like that. How big you are, how important you are at that particular moment or just in general. I had a growth for myself. I had a growth um, since last year of almost 5,000 followers. It's a lot on Instagram only, and also I think also a couple of thousands on 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 Facebook. I don't know who those people are, <laughs> and so like I think two or three months ago, when I had my show in in Berlin at Panorama Bar, it kind of hit me. Thought, okay. I'm gonna play this show. It may, it might uh, shift something in my in the digital world. So I was kind of, um, and I didn't have like a panic attack, but I was like, oh, my mind, because everything, every time I played somewhere, I was like, okay, I had a really nice time. I'm gonna play out, and people are having a nice time too. Um, I didn't thought about what kind of impact it might have, just having, just playing music out loud. And uh, that particular show that made me think like, okay, if I'm gonna do that show or even like with, a, with an, another artist, it would put me in a certain position, uh, which is nice, but at the same time, it has its downsides because I don't, like I already said, I don't know who those followers or who those people, who those people are. So that was for me, my personal experience, how to, the downside of, one of the downsides of social media. In the end, it worked out for me, still is. I didn't have any like stalkers or something for like oh, that's that. Good. Stuff, like, <laughs> no, not even, not yet. No, please no. But <laughs> for, yeah, oh yeah, that's what I tried to say. Like, if you have so many followers, it doesn't say that the artist or the DJ who has like a thousand followers and uh, doesn't make any, or make any good music, you know, um, or is a good DJ. It doesn't say anything. Basically, the amount of followers or people that recognize you, 
doesn't say anything. And most media and other companies who are valuing, uh, having a big value about the followers and the amount of likes that you have, etc. I think that's a very important thing to work with certain brands and stuff like that. I think it's a, it's a good thing and a bad thing at, at the same time. Yeah. Depends how you do it. Yeah. Aaron, you've seen the game before all of this. I don't think I have seen the game before all of this. This is like my experience of what the industry is like. It's like brand partnerships and Instagram. But I'd be curious to hear what your opinion is. Well, you know, like uh, like way back in the day when they built all like the beautiful cathedrals and all that stuff in in Europe and there was no one's name attached to any of the artwork. It was owned by the by the church. And I mean, it's it's weird, like this weird concept of it, but I, but I feel like that and to some degree is kind of what's happening now. Not that I disagree with it because I think it, it's a great situation for artists, especially artists without money to be have more exposure given to them. And so it's kind of like, I don't know. I think if you would have asked me in the 90s about this, I would have been like, fuck that. You know, this is selling out and stuff. But I, I, at the time that we're in now, I don't necessarily believe that because, you know, none of us are like, we're, we're all trying to live our lives doing the things that we love. And by doing the things that we love as artists, we share that love with people and we want people to feel that love and the best way to do that is by just I don't know having the opportunity to show people that side of it so it's not all I, I don't really think that it's all that bad I mean you know like I said earlier there's so many artists that come from really wealthy backgrounds that never have to worry about that their parents their can buy them their followers their parents can pay for them to go to music school have private training a lot of us don't have that and so we need those we need those things and you know people working at at different companies you know are people like us coming from blue collar families coming from families that didn't have like the opportunity as well so i don't know i don't know if i can knock it that much although i do wish that at the same time that it was that the playing field of like the monetary uh, what you needed to monetarily put out there in order to beat the Instagram algorithm was like easier. You know, I just, I just, I just wish that there was more. It's just, you know, I, I follow so many people on Instagram that follow us just because I'm interested. I'll like see, oh yeah, this is cool. Yeah, this artist is amazing, this visual artist. Oh yeah, I'll follow them. But then it's like, you know, my Instagram feed doesn't show me all the 3,000 people I follow or whatever. <laughs> it's like, but I would like to see if, some, if it's a good art and sometimes you forget about it. And that's all the algorithm, you know, that's all. And it's, but it's all across the board. And so, I mean, to, I mean, it would be good democratizing effect to just have it be where that algorithm was just an open, a truly free open source. But obviously, it's not. Sadly, no. Yeah. Um, that was kind of weird tangents, but, you know. <laughs> Suzanne. How important is your online presence to you? Well, number one, I never look because I just don't want to go there. I, I, I really, I don't even know how to post anything. 
on, but Rachel does. <laughs> so, but we don't do that much. I mean, my Instagram, I think you can see my posts on like one page. And, you know, I don't have a, an objection to it. I, I feel the subtext in here because I don't even understand what it is. Like, I didn't know you could buy Instagram followers. Do people do that? Yeah, totally. A lot of really? people do that. It's a huge, it's a huge thing. Wow. Yeah. Okay. How many do you want? I'll sell you some. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know that I have any useful opinions about that. I, I thought Facebook was for me and my family. And uh, then we had a, you know, a page that was just for the business, whatever. But people don't go there. They, they ask to be your friend. And so I just don't even go. I do, you know, they do have those algorithms. So if I go on my Facebook, I see my niece, I see my nephew, you know, I see what I want to see. I don't want to. Some people I noticed in the beginning would be upset. Oh, she won't be my friend. But once you feed that beast, it just gets hungrier and hungrier. I, I noticed, you know, if you become somebody's friend, then their friends want to know why you didn't become their friend too. And so I just don't do it. I only accept friends, people who actually know that I live near, you know, or whatever. So I'm not a good example of using it as a tool, but I think that, um, you know, we do post uh, concert things on Instagram, right? We're getting the nod from Rachel. Okay. <laughs> That's right. Okay, and I don't think, do those go onto Facebook too? They do. Okay, there you go. <laughs> but it's good to know that you can have an amazing career without having to engage in all of that horrible stuff. Jan, I'm guessing it's you don't... It's horrible. <laughs> I, I, this is so much fun for me to find out that you think it's horrible. I thought you kids loved it. I <laughs> no, I think for me it's just a sort of necessary evil. Um, yeah, and I'm guessing you don't have uh, three different accounts for all your different aliases. No, um, but it's hard. To, I had thoughts about doing stuff like that. And actually I have on different platforms. I mean, on Facebook, I try to combine it all and as Jan Schulte music, which is not easy for people to find when they want info. And Instagram, I wasn't taking that serious in the beginning, so I called it Buffyman because just sounded was quite catchy, whatever. Not that, not as complicated as Wolf Miller with the U or whatever. But um, I'm I'm not that big pro in all. I, I'm kind of maybe from the last generation that grew up without internet. So internet came into my life at the same time where I started making music and discovering all that. It always evolved and it's new things that I mostly don't understand and I'm using it as good as I can but um, yeah I think it's uh, it's not necessary it was not necessary for me as a musician getting into a scene or having my first releases there was about the local scene and um, bringing the records we made into the right record shops like it's, it's a longer process but I think this longer process is, uh, was good for me and for my artistic um, evaluation. Is that the right word? No. Yeah, I think if you, if you can wait a bit longer and you don't take all these internet things so serious, it will um, 
be good for you as an artist on a longer term that um, your music comes to the right people and not to people that hang on the internet all the time. I want people to not hang on the internet. I want them to listen to my music, which is wh wh what I made it for. That's one thing about, for example, for, for Facebook is uh, I realized that if I post a song of mine, for example, on SoundCloud, it doesn't get as much um, feedback as if it was, it was with a video. So I ended up doing a video which is not my thing, like I'm a musician, uh, just with like a bit of last energy to show people my actual product, the music, with shitty pictures, because people respond more to it. And these decisions were weird for me, yeah. Mm. I don't want to have to put something else on top of my music for people to realize about it. That's not what I'm hated for. People can just close their eyes if they want. That's like the music video. Yeah, it's not dreamy music, but you know what I mean. <laughs> so, yeah. Go for it. The one thing I think is kind of trippy as being an artist, like making your own music, is Spotify right now. And I actually just had a conversation with a friend who is, works as a distributor or is a, works at a record uh, distributor. And he was saying that that the um, that the actual record sales are going down right now because of streaming. That there, you know, there was a big boom for a while, and I, I don't know. I found that really interesting. That it's like that now, streaming is actually like you know people are starting to see that as opposed to physical. I mean, you play on uh, you play vinyl only, or you play CDJs. Yeah, yeah, sticks. How about you? Both. What do you tend to use more? Uh, digital, yeah, right. digital. Yeah. And so, so like, do you? But you guys still also buy the records. touring aspect is mostly, but I, uh, it, it and um, the general digitalization uh, drives the scene too. That if you, uh, I arrive too often somewhere where the record players are not set up correctly, and yeah. it doesn't make fun. Where I play one record and I brought a whole, a whole bunch for to test out one, and it has feedback, and um, so these days it's actually just safer to uh, prepare it digitally. I, I, I record records on the first listen these days because it's safer. I don't want any, to come anywhere and the crowd thinks it's a shit DJ because the technician set up the record player's shitty. Exactly. Yeah. So um, it's it's a safety thing with it, maybe. So you so you a fan of rip, grip, and flip? What is this? Rip, grip, and flip. Or no, grip, rip, and flip. Sorry, wrong way. <laughs> it's when you... It's when you I, I, <laughs> This is uh, so. It's when you grip, grip, rip, and flip. Is when you is when you um, you get a credit card and you can buy really expensive records online. You rip them and then you sell that record again. I never sell records. Boom. No, not, it, not never, but um, so, so you can buy like rare records and not have to deal with actually paying any money for it. But you can still okay. get the good digital file. <laughs> yeah, but um, I still collect as much records as I always did. It's for me the thing that I started with, um, and it's still the thing I love. But um, the, the thing about recording is, is a safety thing regarding DJing, because uh, reasons I just told you. And it has a small bonus if you record it directly, the track you want to play. You have to listen to it to the end. It's not the case in the club where you play a new record and suddenly something happens because you didn't listen to the end at home. Yeah. So. <laughs> Uh, the small bonus I like a lot, so I have it all saved in my head already. Even I even saw the ending in the audio file and know how long it takes to. 
stuff. So, yeah. Yeah. Amazing. Well, there's one more thing that I wanted to touch on, which I think has been changing a lot in the world of electronic music. Uh, lately and that is the perception of women as producers and as DJs I feel like we could do an entire panel just on that but I think it would be really insightful to hear from the ladies um, how that's affected you guys Carista maybe you could go first are you finding that there's more of like your peers who identify as women coming through with you at, at this point I don't know I really don't know I like to think that I'm a really good DJ. If people would like to book me because I'm a, I'm a, I'm a woman and that fits perfectly in the lineup of only 90% of, 100% male and then put me in, uh, into the lineup because of that reason, um, then I like to reject that, that booking, of course. I think like lots of promoters and bookers and like to like to work that way but I yeah I don't know I'm very I don't know if I I don't like this um, this subject because I'm, I'm like very focusing on the music and I like to play out and I, of course I'm not blind and I see that there's like a there's definitely a shift going on at the moment uh, for having more workshops for people who like to, who love to play as a DJ in a club and like to know how to, um, especially for women or people who like to identify themselves as women. But for myself and my career, um, how I came so far, I, think, I don't think that it comes from me being a woman, yeah. just me playing awesome music. How important is it to you to be a role model right now? And is it something that you're conscious of or feel pressure around? Uh, something that, that came around like the last couple of months more. Now, of course, I'm a, a woman of color uh, and you don't see that often in the in electronic music of nowadays. So whenever I play, there are always like a couple of ladies that are saying, oh, I want to do the same as you, or like you saw a big in inspiration for me to start um, DJing or being an artist. So that is, of course, very, very flattering, um, and I always like encourage them to do so. But being like a real role model, I don't. It's very difficult because it's not. It's not difficult to be a role model, but it's like when you get yourself conscious of it. That makes it more difficult for yourself to, okay, then I have to certain, uh, I have to sit like this, or, you know. I like to just be myself at, uh, at all times and get me to places uh, where I never dreamed, uh, where I never dreamed of to be at. So, yeah. I think that's the most powerful thing you can do right now. Um, Suzanne, what was it like to have, like, way less people to look up to or blueprints like what I might have now? My mentor, my role model was actually a photographer because I didn't know any women. Uh, so this was a German woman, you know, who, who and her field was technological. You know, she worked with a camera. She was called the diva. No, I was the diva of the diode. She was the queen of the Leica. And, uh, you know, worked with her chemicals, and it was a very technical field. She was 80 when I met her. 
so I was half her age, less than half her age. Now what I'm finding out in this long arc of existence here is that there were always women along the way. We just didn't know about them. I, I played last year at Royal Albert Hall, and they had a premiere. It was a, it was a special program for women pioneers. Now, we need to focus on this because these people were there. We, they were invisible. So they premiered a piece that was written in the 40s by a woman named Daphne Oram. Two orchestras side by side. One of them live processed in the moment. So, you know, with reverb, and she used it with, you know, direct-to-disc because the technology was very primitive. Well, you could say primitive, but different. I never knew about her. I was denied knowing that this woman existed. And that's what hurts me, because there would have been role models, and I think role models are important. I think they shorten the leap. You know, once you see something, it's just a thousand, you know, a picture's worth a thousand words. It just, it just crystallizes a lot of data from getting from here to there. And I was called the, uh, uh, what's the other, uh, the American Delia Derbyshire. So I'm reading that I'm the American Delia Derbyshire, and I have no idea who Delia Derbyshire is. And I think, well, who is that? You know, and now I know what a pioneer she was. But in my developmental years, I didn't have that. So I think it's important, uh, you know, women, we, we are technologically still a minority. And you can see that where you see collectives, where you see groups. I, I go to Berkeley College of Music twice a year. And, you know, there'll be one female in the class and 12 guys. And it's just, like, doesn't have to be that way. But we're trying to find the levers, you know, to, uh, to adjust that. Because the women are there and they want to, they, you know, this is fun stuff. Yeah. You know? <laughs> so... Uh, but I really appreciate what you're saying about not wanting to think about that, that you are in your own right a great DJ. You're not a woman DJ. And I can see how that can feel a little bit demeaning. For me, I don't care because, you know, I've been in the place where there were no women at all. And so anything that helps to, you know, shift that is I, I approve of whatever it is. I had one last question, which was to do with um, taking care of yourself whilst you're on the road, whilst you're traveling for shows, whilst you're in the studio for hours and hours and hours. How do you guys avoid burning out and what are your sort of music self-care tips from everyone? Jan? A good tip is to do what you really like that's what gets me, what keeps me alive is that I see it as a present that I'm able to do this so, and even more and more and more, which also, of course, gets more traveling time and which is more exhausting and I need sometimes one day more to, um, to get my energies back or something. Sometimes it's, of course, funny that you 
for a two-hour set of music, you're traveling 20 hours. That's a level uh, that is confusing sometimes, but um, in general, I would have never thought to be able to do music this way. And um, I just produced a lot of music in the last half year because it was the first time that I actually had a studio and equipment and time. And uh, before that in my life, sometimes I had time, but no equipment or something. All, all at once, it's a present, and that is what uh, keeps me alive and happy about this. Krista? Don't drink. I don't drink. <laughs> I think just to keep myself focused. I've been touring around for a while now, and what helps me is that I just don't drink beer or drink any alcoholic supplements uh, in between the touring and just leave it for the last show of that weekend. So then I go like, oh, no, dogs, but <laughs> no, but then I, yeah, I'm allowing myself to have a, to have a, a beer or a shot of tequila. But during shows, it's like club mat, oh, sorry, mat, yeah, I think it's kind of, yeah, mat and water only and workout uh, on Tuesdays. Aaron? Um, yeah, I think what both of these two said is like just to be, you know, gr grateful for your opportunity. Combination, you're not drinking and you're loving what you do. Yeah, exactly. Being grateful, <laughs> great, being grateful that you have the opportunity and, you know, every day waking up and thinking that and just, you know, being thankful. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm actually like super healthy. I haven't always been in my life, but I'm like vegan and I don't eat grains and like all this weird shit. But um, <laughs> but also, you know, um, yeah, doing what you love and not compromising, you know, like not compromising yourself for doing, you know, I don't know, just following your intuition, trying to build your intuition. And I, I had like years ago, I had actually this, time period, like a really hard time period dealing with industry stuff with like, you know, getting fired from a label and like, um, and having to deal with a, with a management that was like just a bad situation. And the other thing about management is if you can always get in a contract with management so that you know what they are going to provide for you and that there's a clear line. But outside of that, I was having this, like it was just a, a rough year and my kids are really into skateboarding and I started skateboarding again after like an 18-year hiatus and now I skateboard pretty much every day, as many, as many days as I can. So, and, but I mean just exercise and like, you know, yeah, and it can be doing whatever you want to do, just walking, seeing the environment, listening to not just music but to the sounds around you. And to other people. That's a strong tip. Suzanne? I don't know that I'm really good at this. I mean, I love exercise. And when I'm home, you know, I, I do that. I do Pilates, too. I love Pilates. It's, you know, it's, and I love tennis. But I broke my hand um, recently. But now it's better. Thank God I'm not playing the piano. Because, you know, it, the bukla is a lot more forgiving or, you know, your hands. Um, on the road, I think my biggest challenge is sleep. Because with all the traveling and the jet lag, I don't know how you, you deal with it, but 
Uh, I try to ignore it. I just try to say it doesn't exist. Jet lag is not even a concept, right? And that helps a lot, you know, if you don't give into it. Also, if you travel enough, I think your body gets so confused. There, there's actually a formula for jet lag for getting over it. We found that? it's like you fast for 16 hours before you like before you leave, so that by the time you get there, you've fasted for 16 hours, and then you know you drink a lot of water, blah blah blah. But then when you get there, then you you eat like with the first meal, and it works like amazingly. Well, that's because you're not eating the airplane food. No, no, I don't. I can't no. deal with it. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> It's a definite no-no, but fasting, okay. Yeah, yeah. All right, thank you for that tip. Okay, great.